you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask if you'll open to the book of John. Uh, the portion of Scripture we're really going to be focusing on is in John chapter 8, but we're actually going to look a little bit back at John chapter 7 uh, to start this morning. The uh, title of my message is Drop the Stone. I planned that title well before I planned on wearing a jersey this morning, so perhaps for some of you I really need to encourage you, please drop the stone. Take it easy. We're going to be okay. Uh, but let's, let's just take a moment to center our hearts and our minds on what God wants to share with us this morning. So if you'll just close your eyes with me just for a few moments. Heavenly Father, open my heart. Open our hearts to hear what you want to say. Anything else can just be pushed aside. God, anything that I might add on to what you want to say but really isn't the heart of the matter, pray that no one would even remember those words. But God, what you want to say this morning, open our hearts so that we can hear it and we can receive it. Because I know that you're here and you want to speak to us. Pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning we're going to be reading a portion of scripture that talks about a woman who was brought to Jesus after being caught in the act of adultery. But to start this morning, I want to give us a little bit of context. And if you've been in church before, you might have read this story. You might have even heard this story preached on. But I wanted to give us a little bit of background of what brings us to this, to this opportunity this woman has to meet with Jesus. So in John chapter 7, we're going to read verse 45 to 52 together. If you have your Bibles, please use them. I'm going to be reading from the NIV this morning. It says this, Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in, him being Jesus? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or any of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. So for those of you who this, this story is, is new to, I want to give you a little bit of context and make sense of what we're talking about here. The Pharisees, these, these religious leaders, these scribes, had an issue with Jesus because Jesus had become a popular teacher in the land and people were following them and listening to him instead of doing what they said. As you can guess, this made them angry, jealous, mad, frustrated. I don't know if you've ever had someone or something that the very sight makes you angry. Perhaps right now. But that, just being in the presence of them annoys you, irritates you, brings hostility. In verse 49 here, they say, this mob, this group of people, this massive group of people that are following and listening to Jesus, this mob that knows nothing of the law, they don't know anything about God's word, the law, what God's instructed. We are the religious elite. We understand it. They know nothing about it. There is a curse on them. 
These religious leaders talking to the the temple guards, the Roman guards. Again, at this time, you had the leaders of the church, leaders of the Jewish synagogue, I should say. And you had the Roman leadership, the governmental leadership for the land. And the government leadership were able to make decisions like choosing death penalties. The religious leaders could could make uh, instructions and ordinances and even give discipline, but only to a certain level for not following proper religious practice. But they needed the higher power of government to be able to pull off the discipline, what they were wanting to do to Jesus. Ultimately, that we see when Jesus is crucified later on. But the response is this mob, they're, they're idiots. They don't know anything. They're stupid. They don't know what we know. They focused on trying to discredit them. It's amazing human nature and how consistent it is between all of us. And when we operate out of our own fear and our own insecurity, we tend to stretch the truth. We tend to lie. We fail to see things for the way they really are and we begin to label or cast other people into a hierarchy of value. Our own insecurities and our own fears always have a way of doing that. This very statement right off the bat could be proven to be untrue. Nicodemus, who is one of them? He is one of these religious leaders. He's the one who questions, well, shouldn't we at least hear what he has to say? We know from an earlier exchange he has with Jesus that Nicodemus is a believer in Christ. He is one of them. He believes in Jesus. And he pleads with them, should we not at least hear what this man has to say? But when we operate out of fear, when we operate out of our own insecurity... We are no longer open to listening, to actually listening to those around us. And we reach a dangerous territory. Church, even for those who disagree with what you believe, what I believe, or what we believe, if we get to the point where we are no longer able to actually listen to someone else, we've got to check ourselves Because we're properly operated out of our own fear and insecurity. So we see Nicodemus challenge. Shouldn't we at least hear him? But there was an unwillingness to listen. An unwillingness to engage Jesus. To seek what this man was truly about. What his message actually was. Again, I don't think many of us have to go far to have a visual picture in our minds of people not able to listen to each other. Our current cultural and political climate is littered with this. It's completely polluted as the word fake news has become just normal vocabulary, as if it's actually even a real word. The response to this mob of people, these people that were following Jesus was mockery. No prophet ever came from Galilee. If Jesus really was a prophet of God, if he really was speaking on behalf of God, he wouldn't be from Galilee because no prophet ever came from Galilee. Well, that's not true. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know the story of Jonah, who God sent out. Jonah was from Galilee. And regardless of that, God can choose whomever he wants to do whatever he wants. 
See, what was swaying and tainting the mind and perspective of these religious leaders is the same force that is often at work that keeps you and I from truth and you and I from unity within the church and you and I from the truth of what God wants us to know and to live. And that is the work and the lies of the enemy of God, Satan. See, this enemy speaks some of the same lies to you and, and through others. Perhaps he's done this to you specifically about part of who you are and why you can't. God, you can't be that person that God's told you to be or that you think you're supposed to be because you're too poor. You're too rich. You're not talented enough. You're not special. You're from a broken home. Or think of all the past mistakes that you've made. Think of what people already know about you. No one would ever listen to you. What we are left with as we dive into this encounter that Jesus has with this woman. So we have a group of religious elite who are threatened and enraged with Jesus and are left looking for any reason they can to be able to rid themselves of him. And it is in this context, it is after this exchange, Jesus leaves for the night and the next day they come prepared to come after him again. And this brings us to John chapter 8. If you'll read with me, we'll start just by reading verses 1 to 5 from John chapter 8. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So after this exchange with the people, after all this kerfuffle the day before, Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. He secludes himself. He goes away to pray. There's a small bit of encouragement and reminder there for us. Jesus didn't chase them down. He didn't go to the Roman authorities to say, you got it all wrong and these guys are giving you fake news. I need to clear it up. He didn't ask for an interview. He didn't chase down and make sure that he got the popular vote of the people. Jesus himself went away to pray. I hope that becomes more of the automatic action for us. Instead of feeling we have to prove and justify ourselves in front of the world. That we make sure that we're first connected with God. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Jesus is in a very popular area outside of the temple. Surrounded by people who are coming to listen to him. And these religious leaders drag through the crowd this woman. Who is caught in the very act of adultery. Can you imagine the state of this woman? Imagine the compromising position that she found herself in. Punishment aside, women at this time were not given the same rights as today. 
Infidelity would bring great shame to her personally and to her family. Even without the potential of stoning, without the potential punishment that that these men were proposing, she would become an ostracized individual. One you would warn your children to avoid. One you would step to the other side of the street to make sure you didn't interact with. And here she is, publicly shamed, drugged out into the street for all to see. Her infidelity, her secret shame, her secret sin, not only exposed for all to see, but now debated in the public square. Stoning aside, imagine this. Just imagine for yourself, if your mistakes, those times and incidences and things that you've done in your life that you would never want anyone else to know about, that you came to church here at ECC this morning and suddenly on the video screen there was hidden cameras that caught every single one of those moments. Not only do we play it for everyone to be able to see, but then we have public debate about it. We break down every frame, everything that you did, and we decide your fate. We don't ask you your thought, your opinion, but you sit there while we talk about you and the worst that you have. She had to sit there amongst the people that were the leaders of her temple, that were her neighbors, her family members. It is inevitable that when we operate out of our own selfishness, our own self-righteousness, that the people around us will inevitably have no value. Self-righteousness feeds selfishness. It has to. It's all about the self. This woman had no value to these people. There was not even consideration for what this would do to her. They made her stand before the group. They made her stand Potentially in front of her family members, her parents, her nieces, her nephews. The people she grew up with. They used their power as religious leaders and lorded it over her. Again, this woman had no chance like she was preparing for trial, but she was drug out during the very act Stripped out and taken out and thrown in front of this mob. Shamed for all to see. She was caught in the very act. I'm no expert. But my math would tell me that there would need to be two people involved. Someone else was there. 
Someone witnessed and someone was involved. See, under Jewish law, compromising circumstances, so conjecture or enough facts but not really sure, was not enough for sufficient evidence to charge for this. Someone actually had to watch and see. And with that, someone had to be involved. They had to see two people. The law actually required the execution of not just the woman, but the man. Now again, these were all laws that weren't at the time actually held up, but they were bringing up the law of Moses, which was not the ruling law of the land, because they were trying to trap Jesus. This whole episode was a sham. It was a trap to try and set him up, to try and discredit him. These men weren't really about making something right. They weren't about trying to get truth and trying to make sure that things were corrected. If that was true, they would have outed the other partner in the affair. But he's never mentioned. Never indicted. Again, the Romans did not allow Jews to carry out death sentences. So if Jesus said to stone her, he would have been in conflict with the Romans. And that would have given grounds for the Romans to be able to arrest him. But if he had said not to stone her, then the Jewish leaders could have, uh, could have accused him of being unsupportive of the Old Testament law. They had their own personal moral agenda here. Simply to discredit Christ. They weren't fighting for God's righteousness. Rather, they cloaked their own personal insecurities and ambitions in a righteous outcry. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever done that? Sometimes we even fool ourselves. We talk about it enough that we believe that we're doing something for God because it's right. We cloak it in this pious righteousness. But it's truly out of our own selfish motivation. When we operate out of jealousy and selfishness. The truth is, if we do not love, we are not honoring God, nor are we doing his work. How do I know that? The Bible says it clearly. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says this. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not know God, or does not love, does not know God. Because God is love. If you are a son or daughter of God then your life is defined by what God is all about. And God is love. No matter if someone's actions are right or wrong, if your response is not motivated by love, I can guarantee you, you're not doing God's work. You're doing your own. Now, I'm not going to break into the horrible early 90s song, but I am going to ask the question, what is love? If you're thinking it in your head right now, I'm sorry, because it's probably going to be stuck there for like 10 minutes. 
But if you've been to a wedding, you already know this, but let's look closer again. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 7 spells it out. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. Envy is at the very heart of what these men are about. It does not boast. It is not proud. There's a word that can define these religious leaders as we see them throughout the New Testament in exchanges with Jesus. It's pride. It does not dishonor others. That's clearly here. It is not self-seeking. And it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. These men are salivating at the opportunity to trap trap Jesus. They aren't even thinking of the destruction this is going to bring to this woman's life. All they are enraptured with is that they are going to win. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Now, you might be really comfortable with the facet of me pointing out that these men are not loving in their exchange with this woman. But can I ask you this morning, honestly, how do you respond and interact to those you disagree with? Even strongly disagree with. Or even disagree with on the facet of moral grounds. Can you honestly say that these are characteristics of how you treat them, you respond to them, and you think about them. Now, don't get me wrong, we can still strongly disagree and even follow through on consequences and punishment for wrong actions. But when it is done in love, any punishment is about the betterment of the individual, not about winning an argument or proving moral superiority. This woman is drug out for all to see, shamed and embarrassed. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders and scribes then say, all right, Jesus, how do you respond? We see Jesus' response. Verse 6 to 11 of that same chapter of John chapter 8. First, we're going to view his response to those who attacked this woman. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him, meaning Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down. And wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first. Until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there. Jesus bends down to the ground. Begins to write in the sand. There's lots of speculation. What what was it that Jesus wrote? Some people think maybe he started to write down the sins of the religious leaders that were there. 
Some think he might have started writing down the commandments, Ten Commandments. We don't really know what he did. But as he wrote, they pushed him further. Because again, the agenda was not about making wrong right. as well proving their own superiority. And Jesus finally re- rebuttals to them with something that they did not see coming and something they didn't know how to respond with. You who is without sin, throw the first stone. Church, when it comes to the moral issues of our day, we always have to remember that. Any righteousness that we have at all is not our own, but is only through Christ. The book of Romans tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. These religious leaders would have known that to claim that they were without sin, even if they believed in their own pride that they were superior to everyone else, to do that, would essentially be confessing that they sinned because it says in the scriptures that that's not true. It's, it's the equivalent of standing up and saying, I am so incredibly humble, so much more humble than all of you. Even if they believed it about themselves and their pride had blinded them that much, they knew they couldn't. And so one by one, they dropped their stones and they left. Jesus disabled their weapons with just a word. As he suddenly changed the perspective to look inward instead of focusing, trying to judge the outward. Jesus pointed out their hypocrisy. I find it funny how it says, I don't, it makes it clear that the older ones left first. Kind of hit me while I was reading that this week. wonder if that's because the senior leaders, the ones who had studied the scriptures for so many years, They knew that there was no way of arguing around that. It's funny how we go through our years. The younger, sometimes the younger you are, the more you think you know, and the older you get, the more you realize you don't. He who has no sin cast the first stone. And so these This group, they all leave, they vacate one by one, their stones drop behind till it is only one left. So we see Jesus with this woman. This is significant. See, only Jesus is left because as the scriptures tells us, he became sin who knew no sin. Jesus came to take our sins because he was the only one who had no sin. By the fact that Jesus himself didn't leave, 
tells us that he was the only one capable of living up to the standard that he set with that question. And so he responds to her. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Then neither do I condemn you. Earlier, we see the evil use of power that forced this woman to be publicly shamed and trapped her. But diametrically opposed to this, here we see the response of Jesus. One of authority as he chooses not to condemn, but invites her to a life of freedom from sin. See, power manipulates and lords over people, but authority, authority truly leads and releases. The authority of Scripture that is given to us to be able to spread and share and proclaim through the world releases and frees people. Power born out of our own selfishness and insecurity only traps and entangles people. Only Jesus could do this because of what he did on the cross. That woman's choice was still wrong. The act that she was found in that she committed was sinful. It's why it brought such shame to her and it was deserving of punishment. But here's the key. The act, yes, deserved punishment, but Jesus had already put a plan in place to pay for it. Jesus had already put a plan in place to pay for that sin, to pay for that punishment. Just as he has already put a plan in place to pay for your sin and my sin. We must not reinterpret this event to mean that Jesus was easy on sin or that he contradicted the law or that it wasn't a big deal. For Jesus to forgive this woman meant that Jesus had to one day die himself for her sin. Forgiveness in Christ is free, but it is not cheap. Law and grace do not compete with each other, but rather they complement For God so loved the world that he gave. His one and only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This was done through the penalty that Jesus has already paid for you. As Pastor Jeff explained last week, God is not contained by time which means he already knows your end. And he already knows the mistakes that you've made. And when he went on the cross, he already knew that and he bore it then And there, it's already paid for. Whoever believes in him will not perish. Your sins are forgiven. Neither do I contemn you. What is it in your life? What is the sin? What are the moments that would make you mortified to have filmed and played in front of the people here this morning? What is it that you try to keep hidden? Hidden from others and even... Even in sometimes your most foolish moments hidden from God. Can I say this clearly today? Jesus' response to you. Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. If you had heard the lies opposite, I I guarantee you, God makes this very clear in his word. Neither does he condemn you. 
But then he goes further and he says, go and sin no more. Because Jesus has so much more for you than that. It's so much more than him saying, I won't condemn you. I won't hold that against you. His grace, his gift of forgiveness is so much richer than that. Jesus said, go now and leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. For her meeting a man who is interested in saving rather than exploiting and in forgiving rather than condemning must have been a new experience. Jesus' attitude provided both the motivation and the assurance she needed. See, forgiveness demands a clean break with sin. That Jesus refrained from condemning her was a guarantee that he would also then support her. God's plan for you is not just simply, I'll let you go do whatever you want. It's similar for those of you who have children. When you parent a child, there's discipline. There are rules that you put in. But if you are a good parent, it's discipline and rules you put in for the betterment of the child because you want them to grow to be a healthy, strong, well-functioning adult. Jesus doesn't just say, do whatever you want, but he's given us his laws are not for the sake of simply making our lives horrible, but rather there's, they're a guideline to say, this is how to get the best and most rich experience of life. God's laws and his call on your life is for your good. To simply ignore the sin and, and leave an individual mired in sin is probably the most unloving possible response. If you can imagine if you were in the middle of the ocean on a sailboat, and if you're like me, you have zero skills to know how to do the sailboat. The fact that I said do the sailboat clearly shows I don't know how to sail a boat. <laughs> and as you're in the middle of the ocean, the boat capsizes and flips under, and you're stranded there for hours and hours, and the Coast Guard finally sends a helicopter. And they have a ladder and a guy comes down on the ladder and he sees you there and you go, I'm so sorry, I, I, didn't, know, I, sh I didn't know how to do the boat, I did it wrong. And he goes, that's okay, I forgive you. And then goes back up the ladder and they fly off. <laughs> how does that help you? <laughs> to simply say, I want a God who just wants me to do whatever I want and leave me alone, it's the equivalent. That would be so falls so short of what God's grace actually is because God doesn't just forgive you of your sin. He calls and pulls you out of it. He saves you from it and brings you into something that's full of life. To settle short is to settle short of the God, gift God has for you. Jesus, Jesus loves you too much to leave you in the midst of the sea. He has come to rescue you, to free you from a life of slavery. Romans 6, 15 to 18, I'm going to read this really fast, but it makes this clear. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey. Whether you are a slave to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience to God, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that... Though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. God doesn't simply leave you and me in our mess, but frees us so that we can emerge from it. He does that because first he says, neither do I condemn you. 
You are not defined by that. That's not how I've made you and that's not who you are. Go and sin no more. In John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Following this teaching, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This light, Jesus himself, he's not a dark, cruel judge. He is a true Life, loving, righteous judge. Being pure and wanting what is good is not a prerequisite to knowing Christ. It is the byproduct of a relationship with him. Light penetrates darkness. David invites us in Psalm 34, 8. And he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. This woman tasted that he is good. His words came from David, a man who committed a very similar sin. This morning, God's grace offers us forgiveness. And his goodness empowers us to be able to live the life that you and I were made to live. It empowers us to crawl and come out of the sin that has defined and trapped us in life. Those addictions, those patterns, those thoughts, those things that have, we've almost bought into being who we are and define us, that we feel we can never get free of. Jesus empowers you to come out of that. So as we conclude this morning, may I challenge each of us to drop our stone for those of us who have allowed voices in our head to keep us afraid and keep our sin hidden, we haven't been drug out yet. Come to the one who can free you. He's not going to throw you up on the projector. He's not going to shame you. He's not going to sit there and one by one read off everything you've done and make you feel the full weight of your shame, of your sin. But rather, he is a loving God who will respond with the words, neither do I condemn you. Go, sin no more. Be freed from this. Come into the fullness of life that I have for you. For those of us this morning who are perhaps trapped in our own religious piety, we need to drop the stone because neither you nor I are a righteous judge. And God doesn't need us right now to judge the world. He's called you and me to introduce the world to the one righteous judge who wants to liberate them and bring them life. Let's allow God and his love to define all our interactions. Again, this doesn't mean no action or no stance or no disagreement. But let's allow God to check our heart. And again, call us on what is maybe just our own selfishness or our own insecurity. And allow God to lead and motivate you to bring people to him. Not simply try to drag them to your own convictions. Will you stand with me? So we close in prayer this morning. I want to give quick opportunity here. If you'll close your eyes, we're not going to be doing anything here, but it's a way of focusing. 
You can pray to God with your eyes open, but sometimes we do this, especially when we're surrounded by people because it's easy to get distracted. But I believe that God is wanting to talk to hearts right now. And I'd be remiss to not give an opportunity that if you are here this morning and you have yet to ever actually experience the freedom that comes from hearing those words from God, neither do I condemn you. To be able to come to God and say, God, I know that I've got sin. I've got stuff in my life that isn't right, and I want to make it right with you. He wants to forgive you today. God so loved that he gave. He paid for your sin already, but he wants to give that to you if you believe and receive him. And he wants to do it so that you can then move forward in your life and sin no more. That he can empower you to live the life he's called you to. As he is the forgiver of your sin and then the leader of your life. If that's you today with eyes closed, I want to pray for you. I'm just going to ask if you'll lift your hand. It would be my honor to be able to pray with you today that God would bring that freedom, that healing, and that forgiveness in your life. So I'm going to give just a few moments here. Yes. Ron, thank you. Is there anyone else who would like to join? Yes, in the back. Is there anyone else this morning? Just a few more moments. If if this is you this morning, I want you to pray in your heart this prayer to God. And following that, I'm going to lead for those of us who perhaps we need to learn how to drop our stones. I want you... If that's you, as I pray that, just to lift your hand. Just cup your hand up to God. It's in releasing to him. And allow his love to then fill and define you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your love and compassion. This morning, for those who lift their hands, I pray that they can just repeat these words that I'm praying for themselves to you. Heavenly Father, I know I've done wrong. I'm not perfect. My sins may be not up front for all to see, but I know the junk in my life. Would you forgive me? Can you heal me where I'm broken? God, I want your spirit to live inside of me. Would you come and be the leader of my life and help me so that I won't fall into the same traps. I don't want to be the same person. I want to be defined as God's child and live the life that you've made me to live. Thank you for loving me and forgiving me and that I'm new in you. God, for those of us this morning who we need to drop our stones We've operated in judgment towards other people in our church family. We've operated in judgment towards our our family members, towards our neighbors, towards our friends, towards our coworkers, towards strangers. God, towards large groups of people where we've allowed our own selfishness and our own selfish nature to get tied in where we almost cloak it to believe that we're doing your work. But God, when we evaluate ourselves, love is in no way defining the way that we respond and act. God, help us to make a difference so that we can see people change by being drawn to you rather than being changed to think what we think. Because you are the one who transforms, not us. 
So where we have judged harshly, where we have no longer valued people, can you forgive us? And teach us how to truly represent and live the way you do. Thank you that you've forgiven our sin. And again, we ask today, would you forgive us? Draw us back to what we are called to be and called to do. And I pray that over these weeks to come especially, as there's opportunity for us to share the gospel, to talk about Christmas and what it represents, what it's actually about. God, may we not be those who simply bark and preach, but God, may we be those who share the good news. Because that's what it's about. Thank you that there's good news to share. So for each one today, I pray that you would empower them so that this week, each one of us can go out with the gift you've given in us to share with those around us. In Jesus' name I pray, and if you agree, say amen. Amen.